0: I came to realize that when it comes to deep tech in particular, there's a lot of great research coming out of universities in Southern California. There's less money chasing them, especially at the early stages.
1: Welcome back to the Purpose Innovates podcast. This is where I invite the world's leading innovators to articulate the broader purpose of their endeavors, encouraging all of us to consider how we might contribute to the future of the world if you enjoy the show please subscribe on youtube and follow on spotify and share these episodes with your friends spread the insights from these amazing innovators david mandel is the managing partner and founder at emerging ventures where he's invested in over 500 emerging tech startups This episode, we look at the importance of showing your ability to execute if you are a startup who is looking for venture capital investment. We also talk about the role of venture capital in global innovation and how venture capital has supported and enabled innovation around the world. We also discuss venture capital in Silicon Valley compared to the broader context of venture capital around the world. Please enjoy this episode. I would love to basically just start with a broad question about the impact of venture capital on innovation and how the venture capital space has contributed to the the innovation that has occurred in the U.S. um, over the past 20 years. What has the role of venture capital been? Venture capital in its current form is really no different than
0: um, venture capital that was out for centuries, that originally funded, uh, you know, if you read all the books, it funded everything from the expeditions that discovered America and faraway lands. Uh, They went out, you know, no individual wanted to sponsor anything big. So groups got together and raised venture. Mm -hmm. And the same concept actually, funds were structured with the same concept of a carried interest and limited partners and essentially more or less in the same form they are today. but, to your more specific question, yeah, the, the tech boom in Silicon Valley over basically the last 20 years, or maybe 30, if you count the internet boom of the '90s, uh, and then the bust, and then the kind of reboom mm-hmm. <laughs> that we 're in now, the new great times we 're in with amazing innovation. Um, are all fueled by venture capital. If it wasn't for the current venture capital ecosystem, we wouldn't have what we have, uh, particularly in Silicon Valley. And to dig into that a little more, that leads into kind of why I do what I do versus what everyone else does. um, It has been 20 plus years of Silicon Valley booming. And it's been feeding on itself. So there was a lot of successes and some failures. And as startups succeed and they raise funds and they raise more rounds, eventually have an exit, as these founders have their first exit, they tend to do two things next. They will usually start their next startup. uh, And because most startup founders aren't career long company managers. They're true entrepreneurs and they like to create and innovate and not necessarily get bogged down in running the day to day of a large organization. So often once they have an exit, they'll eventually leave and start another startup. They want that thrill of the startup life. And the next thing they do, which is very interesting, is they'll often start angel investing. They might not think of themselves as venture capitalists initially, but they'll start angel investing. They will get involved in investing in other startups. They seem to know the ecosystem by then. They have met the venture capitalists. They see how they operate. They're in the ecosystem. They have peers in the ecosystem. They're starting to, they know all the other founders in the community, particularly in a small community like the Bay Area, where there's a large Community, true sense, at least before the pandemic, there was a true sense of community with the startup world there. Everyone knew everyone, they all talked together. All the VCs know each other, all the founders know each other, and a broad sense. They're aware of what's going on. So it was easy to be first check in to your friend's startup company. Your friend or former coworker very often is starting something. You had a startup, it was successful now there was an exit, your number two from your prior company goes out and starts a startup. You're going to support him instinctively. Mm -hmm. And that turns into doing more of that and recruiting others to support them. Before you know it, you say, hey, I'm going to run a small VC fund. And there's a proliferation of these micro VC funds. There's literally thousands of them now. Hmm. And that's part of what's good and bad about the uh, Silicon Valley ecosystem. There, in some people's opinion, I sent to be in that camp today, almost too much money chasing startups there. Hmm. Um, It was good to have availability of funding for early stage startups. If you are a bright young founder with a good idea, you know, and usually a team of founders, and you had a good idea and you can execute on it, you can raise money. You came up with a prototype, you raised some money uh, from angels, and then you execute on that and you're able to raise a nice seed round and then eventually series A and so on from venture capitalists out there. And you didn't really have to go far, it was all local, and and it was obvious where to go. The ecosystem made it easy, and that was great. Um, Over time, and the last decade in particular, um, there is um, platforms such as AngelList and others that made it even easier for angel investors to share their deals so they can syndicate deals. They can create an SPV. Uh, basically, they make an LLC. It's all completely spun up as a special purpose vehicle for that one deal. They create an entity, and it's all automated through Platforms like AngelList or Assure and others that make it easy to do all the back end. And all the other angel investors, whether they're in Silicon Valley or not, can jump in with you. And you're the deal lead, you're managing that entity, you make the investment, but you're investing other people's money. So it's like a really small form of venture capital. It's creating venture capital, but not a fund. It's a fund, but it's a single purpose, single deal fund. It's investing just in that one company, that one startup. If it fails, it fails. If it succeeds, uh, the managing partner gets their carried interest, and the rest of the money goes back to the limited partners Mm -hmm. on that one deal, all or nothing. It's very binary. Mm -hmm. Um, But then on top of that, after syndicating some deals, uh, a lot of those investors um, the the leads I'm doing this uh, organizing to see. Okay, it's too much work to go out there each time and shop each deal and try to get investors for each deal, and the startups don't necessarily want me doing that either. They want to know I can just write them a check. So that's where they start making venture capital funds. They create micro funds, and now there's there were hundreds. I positive that there's thousands. There has to be several thousand micro funds, meaning. Funds that have probably under $10 million in total raise, definitely under $100 million in total raise, that are writing small checks into early-stage technology startups in the Bay Area. Um, And they are competing with angels, and they're chasing deals. So um, I personally, we can talk about this more later, give you some other topics, but I attend pitch events of many programs. So to take another step back, what else is great about Silicon Valley and now elsewhere are uh, types of programs called accelerators. And accelerators are kind of what they sound like. They are programs, like Y Combinator is one of the most famous ones in Silicon Valley. Each Mm -hmm. of their batches now is over 100 companies. Um, But what accelerators... Traditionally, do is they will select a small group of promising startups that aren't quite there yet. They're not quite venture ready, and they'll bring them into a structured program. And it's typically three months. Some are four, or six months. They're usually three-month cohorts. It's an intense program. You're in a. They provide you everything you need. You know, basically a place to work, conference rooms, computers. Uh, usually, a small check um, and they take some equity for it, so like something typical is six percent and a hundred thousand dollar check and three months of using our space and mentorship and access to you know free a w s space and all that mm-hmm. um, and you you can work with your team uh and you have the vibe of being with maybe a dozen other teams uh, each pushing mm-hmm. each other at the end, the main is the pitch day, often called the demo day. And that's when these startups get to put on their presentation and there's maybe several hundred investors that come to watch those pitches. And that's where they get to then follow up with those startups. And the startups are at that point raising around. often as their first official round. They might have some friends and family money and other angel money along the way before the Accelerator program. At that demo day is usually when they're raising their first main round, uh, usually a seed round, sometimes even still a pre-seed round. The companies coming out of the accelerators are often just starting to have some early traction. They may have released a beta. They may already have some actual revenue, often not. So they're right on the cusp of going mainstream and they're raising the round to accelerate growth, bring in some money. Um, And those programs got big the Bay area ones are humongous and they bring in, cause there's all these angels, which are former founders themselves going here and chasing these deals either as angel investors directly or to syndicate or now with their new micro VCs. So mm-hmm. that's kind of the story of um, you know, how, the venture capital industry is spurring innovation. It's spurring innovation by providing a tremendous supply of capital and other resources to the startup ecosystem. Now, it's not quite as rich in other places. So LA has some accelerator programs, some pretty good ones. Uh, Canada has some. uh, Governments in different places are, are actually encouraging this. The LA area, for example, has a lot of great university programs. Uh, Every university here has multiple programs, some in life sciences, some in pure business, some in other deep tech. Uh, There's a lot less money though chasing those deals. So when it comes to say Los Angeles, there's angel groups. Uh, For example, I'm a member of Pasadena Angels and of Tech Coast Angels. They're two angel groups that have been around over 20 years each. Um, They each have approximately 100 active members at a time in each chapter. And the members, so representatives of these groups will attend these pitch days here and then bring appropriate deals to present back to their groups and invest. But it's not nearly the hype of Silicon Valley. So personally, I was... In Silicon Valley, chasing deals and investing with others, following other leads back seven, eight years ago. Over time, as I got involved with angel groups in Southern California, I came to realize that when it comes to deep tech in particular, there's a lot of great research coming out of universities in Southern California. There's less money chasing them, especially at the early stages. Mm. Once they're ready to raise, you know, a formal Series A and they're going to raise, say, $5 million at a $20 million valuation, no problem. The VC firms from everywhere will come down and spend time and kick the tires and invest. But at the early, early stage, uh, where they're, in a the sense, at the accelerator program stage, or not in an accelerator, because not that many actually are in accelerators, um, there's not as much money down here chasing deep tech not nearly, such so a small fraction of what you have in Silicon Valley. The same mm. thing's true for other great innovation hubs that have great research like uh, Toronto in Canada or Austin, Texas or Boston, Massachusetts, uh, San Diego, California, another great, especially for like biotech, uh, amazing, yeah. but not as much money chasing them as there is in Silicon Valley uh, at the early stage. So... What I do through emerging ventures in Southern California and elsewhere, but I'm based in Southern California, is kind of a mirror of what those micro VCs do in Silicon Valley, but I do, I'm kind of the anti-Silicon Valley venture capitalist. In Silicon Valley, let's face it, I I would be nobody. I'm one of thousands of micro VCs and there's nothing special about me for there because I'm not a Silicon Valley native. I didn't go through their ecosystem, and while I know a lot of people there now, I've invested in over 500 startups. Many of them have been Silicon Valley startups, and founders refer you other startups and so forth. Um, I go to YC Demo Day, I go to 500 Startups Demo Day, and they've been virtual lately, uh, obviously, but I've attended them, but I haven't invested from the last two batches. Uh, two batches ago, I did invest in two companies out of YC. Uh, recent batch, none um um i just think it's it's saturated mm-hmm. there were mm-hmm. over five thousand attendees at the virtual demo day just yeah. last you know two months ago a month and a half ago whenever it was uh it, it is amazing it is overwhelming um it's just too much money chasing those deals the best deals got funded had their term sheets while they're in the program mm-hmm. so in Southern California, and with a few other universities around the country, I develop relationships with the, with the programs, with the accelerator programs. I'm also personally an investor as a limited partner in funds of some of these accelerator programs. Um, and through that, I gain access, so I can build a relationship. And it's a lot of work, because then it means being available often for mentoring, being available for pre-pitch days where the companies can hone their pitch on you and so forth. And you spend several hours hearing pitches Mm -hmm. that, but I'm getting to hear them three weeks before everybody else. It's while they're preparing them. So that's great. If I like a company, I can start dialogue about investing in them at that point and not wait till the rush of demo day. mm -hmm. Okay, Okay. Mm -hmm. go ahead.
1: So my question then, well, first of all, thank you for all that. There's so much great stuff there. And it, there's a lot of things I was thinking about as you went through that that whole description of the, of the West Coast scene. One thing that comes up as a question for me is to what extent should a VC, a general partner, um, or an angel, for that matter, be involved in the... Um, day-to-day operations or at least heavily involved with advice or support for the startups they invest in?
0: That's a good question. Um, that's another direction away from what we've been talking about. And styles vary dramatically on both the VC side and the founder side. When a a larger round comes around, the first official equity round, whether you're calling it a seed or a series A, the lines are blurred a bit now. But once you're raising a significant amount of capital as, as equity, not some of the original convertible notes, and you know, um, then it is customary to take a board seat. So whoever is the lead of that round. So a round may have, often has multiple investors and they want multiple investors in there. So there's some diversity and there's a d- multiple investors following the company who can then possibly be interested in leading the next round. But whoever the lead on the round is often has the right to take a board seat. So at that point, the company kind of has to grow up and have a true board, which has more on it than just the founders. At that point, they'll have a board that comprises of still a majority of the founders, but will also have the lead VC on the board, and will usually also at that point take on one independent board member. So there's some supervision of high level decisions by mm-hmm. a board, not the founders just deciding what to do. And whether it's compensation for executives, whether it's making major deals, it's setting major strategy, uh, all those decisions now are made by the board and not just by the executives and executives. So the founders become in a sense, almost employees of the board. Uh, how active the boards are varies dramatically. Some boards are very fast. It also depends a lot on the personalities involved and how strong the founding team is.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If the founding team is very strong and the board, then the board is often more hands off and just lets them do their thing and lets them come to the board when they feel they need to report in and it might just be a quarterly report or maybe a monthly update that they send out to the board and that's about it. Um, in other cases, the board might be very active. Uh, especially if they have some concerns about the direction of the company. At some extreme points, the board actually fires the founders. Um, That happens quite a bit. Um, I've had two of them in the last month, uh, without mentioning names, that portfolio companies that I'm invested in, where there's drama. And um, it's corporate drama. um, And in one case, the board fired the CEO and CFO uh, which were both co-founders that both had significant equity mm-hmm. and is doing a search for replacement. Uh, so mm-hmm. that happens.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, so in that case, the board's super involved in, you know, in a sense, one of the board members is currently acting CEO while they're trying to bring, bring on a new CEO. They're doing a search, uh, okay. but that's extreme. It's not the norm backing it up at the early, early stage with angel investors. Uh, it does, there's still often um, some involvement. When angel groups get involved and collectively invest, they will normally take, if not a board of director seats, at least a board observer seat. So, someone representing the whole collective group of angel investors. Now, it might be 20 angels who each wrote an average of $25,000 and around making up a half a million dollar early round. Um, Individually, no one has a lot at stake, but collectively, it's a decent round. And there's normally someone nominated, often whoever was leading the due diligence on it will take on then that board observer or actual board of directors seat on behalf of the group. They'll be, in a sense, the shareholder representative. And they'll represent the group. So that way you don't have 25 angels each trying to tell someone, someone how to run their business. Mm-hmm. Uh, you kind of yield to the one representative who is staying in touch with the founder, maybe having a a monthly conversation with them, maybe even mentoring them more regularly, depending on the relationship. If the founder is a first-time founder and they're a technical genius but never ran a business before, it may be for their advantage to have a weekly call with this person who may have been a seasoned business executive and just kind of run by them everything um, as a free coach in a sense.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. There's so much. Wow. This is, there's so much to to talk about here and I've got a thousand questions I want to ask, but I'll have to choose one, oh, something here. I, I want to ask, who's
0: your direction. Go ahead. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, I would say, so when Okay, so you are looking at emerging tech as your focus. And these are the companies you're interested, these you're interested in. These are the companies you're investing in. Where do you see, you've already talked about sort of like the supply and demand of emerging tech talent, um, about how Silicon Valley has a lot of money chasing those emerging teams, and you found opportunity in LA where you're based and other places. So maybe you could just speak a little bit about where do you see in the world emerging tech talent? Is it coming out of universities? Is it coming out of um, entrepreneurial spaces? Um, Where is the emerging tech talent coming from for the most part?
0: Yep. The startups, are coming out of everywhere. Silicon Valley is definitely has hundreds, if not thousands of new startups every month. Are just They're popping out as so everyone's, as they leave their current ones, starting new ones and additional people from there start leaving companies, starting their own. Um, but it is now really all over the world. There is hubs of tech everywhere. India is hot. I'm invested as a limited partner in several funds that are doing very well with India startups. Um, like you mentioned, Latin America actually is pretty hot, uh, even Mexico. Um, you know, and in Europe to a lesser degree, but there is a, uh, a bit, uh, quite a bit of startup going on in Europe and the governments they are trying to. Traditionally, Europe was a little harder place to start a business, just regulations, labor laws, everything in Europe was a bit of a burden, but the governments realized that and are trying to deal with it. I'm not an expert on the subject. Um, As a limited partner, I see some of it. I read a lot about it. I'm not actively investing directly in Europe because I don't understand the regulations there and I have enough to do here. Mm -hmm. I think we should focus on what we know best. But in the US, The startups often come out of universities. Uh, It's on the deep tech side, it is often university research being commercialized uh, Mm -hmm. is one avenue of deep tech. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when it's not deep tech, it's really just any entrepreneur with an idea who can can capitalize on, who can actually execute and build a company. Execution is the key, being able to actually make it happen. Everybody has great ideas there's a bunch of smart people with great ideas, but uh, very few actually turn it into a business and succeed in uh, executing so
1: right okay, okay so when you look at a team and when you 're looking at a at a startup to invest in, how are you balancing your assessment of the marketplace the Um, service and product and or product they offer? And then how are you also considering the team? I know that's a lot to throw at you, but how do you balance assessing those elements?
0: So I don't invest in companies that are very early for that reason, because it is so hard to assess. I, you know, when you look at very early stage companies, every day I'm bombarded with, very early stage founders who have they seem amazingly bright and driven and passionate about what they're doing and they seem to have this great idea uh so you know i always you know my favorite slogan uh as i've mentioned i think my favorite slogan is um everyone's smart and ideas are cheap and each of those independently are true and together they're even more true because it's just completely what i see every day i see examples of it literally on an hourly basis. I have these amazingly smart people with great ideas and great passion, but they haven't quite executed yet. And I cannot tell who's gonna execute. If if I only evaluated startups based on saying, okay, they gotta be passionate and bright and they have to have a good idea. I would be writing checks all day long and I would go broke because 90% plus of those fail. Uh, unfortunately, it doesn't translate into having a profitable business. Uh, so I haven't found that secret formula yet. If you figure that out, let me know and we can get rich together. Uh, there, I, I haven't found the magic formula. There's some people who claim they know how to do that very well. And there's programs uh, before even these accelerator programs, there's the accelerator programs that are good at it. And there's, incubator programs that take people with just ideas and try to help them build a business. And that's what they do. They invest in just people and ideas and help them turn it into a business. And I think they anticipate the high failure rate. Um, Personally, I'm not brave enough to do that or smart enough to do that. I can't figure that one out. I don't have an answer to your question on that. I depend on execution. I depend on them finding, being able to execute, meaning deliver a product. They were not just talking about it and writing white papers and uh, business plans, but they actually built something and and got someone to pay for it or got someone to say they would pay for it. So at Mm -hmm. least, you know, depending on the industry, you can't always actually build the full product. Your product might, you know, if it's software, sure build an MVP, deliver it, get some beta users, get it out there. You show me how, you know, all the metrics on the signups, show me how people want to use this and are willing to pay for it and that are continuing to use it and all the stats that go with software. That's easy. If it's not software, sometimes it's harder, you know, um, but you still need to have some good traction. You need to show me that you can build something. That As a team, you guys are capable to work together, start a business, build a product and ship something, get people to pay for it, get contracts, get interest, go out there. Um, I think, like say a good example from our current portfolio, I've used this particular example a few times, even though it's not necessarily anything special about it, just comes to mind now that I've looked hard at at least 30 autonomous drone companies this year. That's a... You know, it's a hot space right now. Everyone's trying to do that. Um, in our portfolio, there's two drone companies funded. One of them is exactly on that. That's doing autonomous drones for, for commercial delivery, for cargo delivery. And the one that I invested in isn't necessarily what you would call most likely to succeed. You know, they're not the valedictorian uh in the traditional sense. Hmm. but they on a much smaller budget delivered. They built it, and they're from Austin, Texas. They're not Silicon Valley. Um, the founder is very smart, and it's a smart team. But they went out there and won big contracts. They swung for the fences and they, and, they, and they hit home runs. They actually, their first two customers are, one of them is one of the big three oil companies. Uh, so they're delivering, uh, completely autonomously, delivering to oil rigs in the middle of the ocean uh, for 5% of the cost of how it used to work. It used to only be done with helicopters. It would cost $4,000 a round. If you need to get a spare part, to fix something, it took a helicopter, and it's a four thousand dollar round trip to deliver. It doesn't matter if it's a screw or if it's a twenty pound package, but it took. You know, the only way to get something there is a helicopter, and that was. Now they do it for two hundred dollars with a drone, completely autonomously and without all the fuel. Um, you know, two hundred dollars round trip instead of four thousand dollars round trip. That, and but they got. There's a lot of companies that have all these great mockups, and they have. I'm making a you know, hundred page PowerPoints, but they have no customers. And they're trying to raise money in order to build their prototype. Where this guy just built the damn thing and then mm-hmm. vetted it and got his customers to sponsor it. And uh, you know, we invested in this company, at say a $10 million valuation when they already have a mil- you know, contracts with an oil rig and they have c- contracts. Their second customer is even more impressive. It's the US Navy. They got a million dollar annual recurring contract with the Navy. Uh, And they beat out a company I was looking at that someone else was syndicating that was a Silicon Valley company that raised over $30 million, has a valuation of over $200 million. But the Navy chose my guy. That was what made me say, okay, I want to back. That's the horse I want to back. So to answer, I'm asking you anecdotally about how I make my selection process. I choose people who can execute. Cause it's not about how smart you are. It's about what you can get done. Mm-hmm. You can be very, very smart, but if you just sit there and think about things all day long and don't actually get stuff done, you're not, you're going to fail in business. So mm-hmm. uh, show me a team that executes and I'll write them a check. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, that's, that's, I'm taking kind of that's the easy path. In my mind, I'm cheating. I'm doing it the easy. way. I make them prove to me that they can succeed before I write them a check. And of course, it's frustrating to founders. They say, well, I don't have money. How am I going to build a prototype? It's like, figure it out. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, but if you don't have any friends and family that will believe in you and you can't borrow from anywhere and you can't do it, on, you know, out of your own pocket, just, you know, with you and your co-founders, then sorry, but that's life. Um, but I don't write checks at that stage. You know, uh, there's some grant money. I mean, I've seen every one of these guys, they all told me, they all figured it out. They got, they got some grant money. They went to incubator. Product. They found a way. They called everyone on the planet to try to find a way to do it. And it's that grittiness of being willing to make a thousand phone calls to try to find someone who will help you build your prototype without you having any money and getting it done. That's what I want to see. I don't want the excuses. well, I need to raise the money before I can build a prototype uh, or I won't be able to build it. I want the guy who just built it and coming to me and say, hey, I built it and I'm and these customers now gave me a contract. Now I need your million dollars so that I can build the commercial version to execute this contract. Mm-hmm. I need to build 10 more machines to fulfill the million dollar contract. And they're going to cost me $50,000 each to build. And that's why I'm raising money now. I like hearing that.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, that makes sense. Um, what do, I mean, you got to mitigate. You got to bring down your risks and see who is executing. Um, and I bet that's part of, that ties into the earlier discussion about, about competition for, it's funny that, it's funny because there's, in a sense, there's competition for this talent. And so to find, um, that's part of your job, I'm, I'm learning is really to, to find that team who's showing promise, who's executing and has all the other elements but is also executing, um, and those don't sit there for long. I'm guessing people, people like yourself, are gonna are gonna see that, and they're gonna try and make something happen. Yeah.
0: Well, the good news is, to answer that a little differently, is that um, venture capital, especially at the early stage, is very collaborative. It's not a win or take all. Um, there's we all want to spread our risk and we all want others to help with the work. So let's mm. say when a startup's raising a million dollars, which is a kind of typical average size, they range from like say 750 to 2 million or so at that stage uh, is what they usually raise. Cause they want to raise enough to last through to the next month, you know, about 18 months to 24 months. And, you know, let's say running a company costs 50,000 a month at a minimum. So you, you need about a million dollars. So let's say they're raising a million dollars. Um, I maybe only want to write 150,000 dollars Maybe it's too five million in the early stage. So I'm not going to take that whole round. If I did that and I have a $10 million fund, I can only write 10 checks. That's not enough. That's not enough diversification in the fund to assure a balanced return to our investors. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of these startups will fail and you don't know which one. So 10 isn't enough.
1: Right. So, we talked about that last time we spoke. And I'd love to just reiterate that for the audience is that you were saying that most funds, most venture capital funds are when they're doing um, when they're looking to build a portfolio of startups, they want to hit about 20, you said to 25 and startups. That, that's a
0: good minimum number to have some stability on the expected return. And that, that's a standard kind of minimum number. And some funds go way beyond that, at early stage. But uh, that's a pretty typical number. Um, and 30 and 50 is not at all unheard of. Uh, depends on the model. Uh, in my case, in my first fund, I want a minimum 25. That's uh, what we're doing in there. Uh, when I was investing personally, I'm even more prolific. I write a lot more smaller checks. They have a lot of diversification, which is why I have over 500 startups in my personal portfolio. Uh, but most of those are like $10,000 checks. And some are 25 and some are 50, but the average probably under 25 on the personal investments. Uh, the fund investments are averaging 150000 So I'm pulling money of 30 limited partners into a fund. And now collectively as a group, I can write one check from the fund into these startups. So the startups don't know or care who my limited partners are they're invisible to each other and they each are entrusting me as the general partner to make all the decisions Hmm. they the limited partners give me the money in the beginning and to a blind pool they don't they know the thesis and they know my background but they don't know what i'm going to invest in in particular they know what kind of companies and what my philosophy is and so forth but of course, we don't know which companies they're going to be. They don't even exist yet sometimes. So, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and then the same thing on the with the founders. When I'm writing a check from a virgin ventures, we'll say, "Yeah, we have about 30 LPs," and we'll describe the type of LPs we have. Sometimes they want to know that. Sometimes they don't even care. Uh, but that's about it. They'll never meet each other.
1: So mm.
0: the venture fund acts as that. that kind of buffer to aggregate pools of money. But back, just like, if I may, just back to your other prior question uh, about the, uh, gain, the talent getting snapped up, as you say. Uh, venture capital is collaborative, especially at the early stages, and especially outside of Silicon Valley. Silicon Valley is getting a little heated, but even there, the rounds are collaborative at early stages. Uh, no one, it's unusual. I mean, you can get squeezed out if you don't act fast enough. There might be a million dollar round, and you might get $10,000 checks really fast and be done. Uh, so, if, you know, it is one of those situations where if you snooze, you lose, uh, but um, it, it's collaborative. So mm. if we like, if I like a deal, uh, I'll often help the founder find other investors. I'll bring it to angel groups or I will, you know, I, we often share. So a lot of the deal flow that comes to me is referred to me by others and vice versa. Uh, we all share. Uh, that's why I'm a member of angel groups so that we can share deals with other angels and the angel groups themselves share deals with other angel groups nationally. We we, we share our best deals that we are in. We want to help them get funded. If we didn't fill the round, uh, then we'll send the whole package over with the founders permission. To say angel groups out of Texas or the Midwest or where you know that we have relationships with, and we work on developing those relationships and knowing what we each like to invest in, so we so so it's actually very collaborative, which is actually part of what I love about this business. It, Mm -hmm. It is not a daily battle; it is a daily collaboration. We're working with the founders and with each other to help these founders raise the money they need. When we find founders that we think have something good going. It's not like, oh, let me hog this to myself. It's more like, how do I help you? You need a million. How much have you raised so far? 300. Okay, here's a hundred from me and let me see who else I can get in on the round.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. If I like them, I want to share because I know in return, those other VCs and angels who are getting deal flow from me will reciprocate. And when they have a good deal, they'll share it with me
1: yes wow that is a that's a new insight for me big time and i'm really gonna think about that and that's a new element that helps me understand the whole system um and yeah wow so what is keeping a vc what is keeping a general partner from making small investments in a very large batch of startups. Is that simply um, because that takes a lot of work and also maybe the startups don't want all that overhead because they don't want a hundred VCs to own part of their company. But like what in the overall system is keeping a, a, a general partner from just diversifying hugely and making a bunch of small investments in um, like a large amount of small investments in a very diverse portfolio to really spread risk. Yeah. If you, if you know uh, what I'm saying?
0: Some do, but it's rare. Um, and the ones that do are often in unique situations, like say 500 startups, which is an accelerator program. They have funds that invest in every company that's going through their programs. So there are funds, uh, that in there that have over 500 investments in them, 500 different startups in one fund. That's Mm -hmm. very, very rare. That's the other extreme. You hit it right on the nail. The first time, it is too much work. It is about a three month process from when you first see a pitch from a startup until you're actually funded. And it's kind of the same work you would do if you're buying a business. So, It's several series of meetings, and then some deep due diligence and some legal. Uh, So it's expensive in time and money. Uh, And there's only so much you can track as well. It takes a lot of human capital to track your investment, to stay in touch with them. Right. uh, You know, so it is not practical. But more importantly, it's just as much work if you're going to write a $10,000 check or a million dollar check. Mm -hmm. which is why the big VC firms don't do what I'm doing here. And that's why there's so many micro VCs up north and there's more of them everywhere now. So a small VC fund like myself can write small checks because we don't really have any choice. Um, So if I have $10 million to invest in the next 25 companies, that's a quarter million each. So that's pretty much my check size that detects, you know, or however you're going to do that. Uh, You look at your fund size, you look at how many investments you want to be safe, and then that's how you figure out your check size and what rounds you're going into. When you're a $100 million fund, which isn't that big for venture capital, there's multi-billion dollar funds, but let's say it's a $100 million fund. Now, you're not going to even invest in seed rounds and pre-seed rounds, because the rounds are too small. Now your check is a $5 million check and you want to write $5 million at a $20 million valuation or $30 million valuation, so you're going into series A and B where you can write $5 million checks. Mm-hmm. Your time's too valuable. You have $100 million you need to deploy in the next 18 months. You're not mm-hmm. going to deploy it by writing $10,000 checks.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what I'm hearing...
0: The, yeah, the math doesn't work.
1: Yeah, and what I'm hearing is it's past the point of reasonable need to do that also because they're at a point where um, the portfolio is still big enough to, to, stay, to be um, stable and safe for their investors. Exactly. So there's no point to keep diversifying at that at that level. Right,
0: and it might be a point of diminishing returns. Uh, this more work, which can be more overhead to the fund, more expenses to the fund to do all the legal and due diligence uh, as a percentage of the dollars. And at the same time, Uh, you might actually, by forcing yourself to find more investments, they can't all be great. So you might actually be reducing the net return of the funds, Mm -hmm. right? And try to find 20 stars. So to look at several hundred pitches per month and know that your only pressure is to find about one good one a month. And when you find that one, focus on it and invest in it, is a lot less pressure than to have to find 10. You might lower your standards a little bit if you need to find 10. Mm. if I need two new companies to choose every week I would choose some companies now when I'm on the fence I say no my default answer is no it's always my main motto is when in doubt say no Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Mm -hmm. and it's just so easy because there's a lot of doubt (laughs) and uh not to be coy about it just you know early stage is a lot of doubt and you really Mm -hmm. have to stand out to be worth even a second conversation So you have the early pitch, maybe you schedule a half-hour call, you text call and dig deeper and spend a couple hours looking at some documents. It really has to stand out as being exceptional. Mm -hmm. If there's enough doubt, you're like, yeah, okay, thank you. We'll stay in touch, and that's it, and you let it go. Uh, There's literally hundreds per month. There's no shortage of startups still coming out of programs going to pitch days once you're in the ecosystem and you have access to everything you're really only limited by your personal time of how many pitches you can hear and how many events you can attend uh, and you're seeing that, and how much information you can keep in your head so you kind of hear 12 pitches in the two-hour pitch events and a day later you probably don't remember nine uh, you, know, you can see the same company two weeks later and it's like how oh, did I see this one before uh, because You know, there's so many, you can't even make space in a drawer in your filing cabinet in your head to store them. It's like next, next, next. So they're all no, unless something comes up that's saying, okay, this is interesting. I want to know more. And you reach out and you schedule a meeting with the founder and you dig in. And unfortunately from that, it usually defaults to no. And uh, if I was forced to choose many more startups, I would have to change that mindset and that can be dangerous. I think that mindset that saying when and don't say no uh, is important. And to know that I only have 25 slots, so I have to choose the best, best, best 25 company I can possibly find in the whole year. And when I come across something, I say, yeah, this is interesting and they have a chance, but then I have to sit back and saying, well, you know, from a whole year, are they gonna be one of the absolute best out of thousands? And then I'd have to th- be honest with myself and say, well, maybe not. Because they're good, but you know, so is everybody else. And mm-hmm. then I start to see all the flaws and all the risks. And I was like, now nah, let me just watch them for a while. And eventually I get cold on the idea. And mm-hmm. I've talked myself out of investing in hundreds of companies that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: Our fund so far made 18 investments this year, which is a lot. And it was spurred, it was actually increased in frequency due to COVID. The pandemic and having to work from home and having events being virtual and being able to go to multiple events around the country in the same day without getting on an airplane has actually helped us see more deals mm-hmm. and help more startups want to raise sooner just to make sure they had money in the bank because no one knew what's going to happen back then. So um, 18 actually for me was a lot. It was very busy. Third quarter alone, we closed five. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now I'm slowing down because I'm already at 18 and I have to make sure, you know, the next seven are the absolute best I can find. Mm -hmm. Uh, And there's so much in the pipeline. So many I've been following.
1: First of all, those last two major conversations we just had really were super insightful and kind of really shifting and deepening my understanding of what you do. Um, So I think that's going to be super valuable to anyone who listens through that. Um, And thank you so, so much for coming on. I think that's a, That's a great kind of point to leave on. You need that spark as a startup. You need something that is going to make David Mandel see you and remember you.